Self-compassion is probably the most important thing to learn and practice. Once you have that, it kind of opens your heart to yourself. And that's the most important person. If you can't open your heart to yourself, you're not opening it to anybody else. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am pleased you are here for another week. This week, we are talking to Mary Martin, who is a trauma-sensitive mindfulness educator and guide who has recently written the book, Mindfulness for Financial Advisors, Practicing a New Way of Being. I really appreciate Mary's perspective on practicing a new way of being and using mindfulness as a way to get there. I think financial planners individuals like you and I who have a relationship with money can all benefit from this fantastic conversation on how can we notice more by introducing some sort of mindful practice in our lives. Before we get to the show, I have a favor. Can you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? It certainly does help bring guests on like Mary. Also, if you are interested in attending the Financial Therapy Association's boutique conference happening from October 5th to 8th in Denver, Colorado, head over to the Financial Therapy Association's website, see all the details, the keynote speakers, and all the other 30 plus speakers. It is going to be a wonderful event and I am looking forward to being there in October. Mary educates people from all ages about mindfulness and its benefits, as well as guides them in developing their own practice. And I really appreciate Mary's perspective on guiding as opposed to telling. We talk about this differentiation between walking beside someone versus telling them. And I really appreciate Mary's perspective about the benefits in walking along someone. Mary received her doctorate from New York University in teaching and learning. She has also been doing years of rigorous training with Brown University to teach mindful-based stress reduction, or MBSR, as well with mindful schools to teach kids of all ages about mindfulness. Mary is a self-disclosed, passionate learner, avid reader, and writer daily, and she likes making connections that might not seem natural at first. And one of those connections is much of what our conversation is on today, is the blending of mindfulness and financial services. Mary has spent years in the financial planning industry as she's written books for others, editing, developing curriculum, assessments, and consulting systems, processes, and operations for financial firms. She has seen this industry, the financial services industry, move from being solely focused to the technical side to now including investor behavior and investor psychology. And I appreciate Mary's work at now adding in mindfulness. I really enjoyed this conversation as we talk about so many wonderful elements that all embrace the human condition. 
why we are all striving for something. Where does that striving come from? What are we not noticing when we're striving? How do we move from a human doer to a human being? And what role, if any at all, which I'll give you a hint, it has a big role, does mindful play in how we recreate these new stories for ourselves, how we can use mindfulness to notice more in our lives and how that noticing can create a richer life. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Mary Martin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on today's show. For listeners who have been listening over the last couple of years, I am a financial planner who has started to attempt to go under the deep, dark waters of becoming more self-aware, realizing they're deeper than I thought and they're darker than I thought. However, there's a lot to be seen under there. So I'm excited to talk to someone like yourself who has such depth of experience with mindfulness. Well, ask away, because there's a lot under there. You're you're correct. There is, a, I agree. There's a lot under there once you start looking. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes you need to remove any sort of, in my case, manliness, macho, I've got things figured mm. out because I certainly don't. <laughs> I want to first talk about this idea of a story because we all have these stories to tell or a song to sing. Yet for many, myself included, we seem to be so busy being busy, we can't even recognize our stories or the song that we need to sing. And I know for myself, being a financial planner and even unpacking why I became a financial planner was insightful for me. But our intention is, at least mine for sure, was always being fought for and it still is. And it seemed like I didn't have time to go under those deep, dark waters. And so I just got lost in my busyness and kept repeating the same old lines over and over. I feel like that's a universal experience to some degree, and I could be wrong on this, but for yourself, you have a large focus of mindfulness. And I don't imagine you've always been such an advocate for mindfulness. Could you perhaps start with sharing a bit of your story and if any inflection points showed up in your life that helped move you closer to what I've heard you saying is waking up to life? Yeah, I, I was like late to the whole understanding, well, beginning to think about understanding life, shall we say. I recently said in an interview that until my 30s, I was doing life all wrong. And I kind of think I was. My story is kind of dramatic in that I was raised by a Buddhist and a Jesuit, you know, so meditation and was always around and contemplative practices were always around, religious and non-religious and there was a lot of talk of theology and interest in theology and interest in contemplation. So most people don't grow up in that environment. That was like the water that I swam in, that I grew up in, was like, what is this life? But I managed to even screw that up, screw that beginning up, and then just go off on some tangent of striving and intellectual achievement and success and money. So, you know, given this wonderful foundation, I kind of tossed it. <laughs> 
and then went to graduate school. And during my doctorate, started ghostwriting and then kind of parlayed that into this very lucrative ghostwriting career, even for the financial services industry, working with a company who did study guides for the CFP exam. I did mock CFP exams and cases. And so I was really kind of in the financial world, a lot of books for financial services, and then even uh, worked with the Sud Money Institute for years. But in my early 30s, and, you know, holy trigger warning, just so you know, in my early 30s, I was pregnant and I didn't know it. And I was having a miscarriage and I didn't know it, you know, fairly far along. <laughs> and so it was, you know, a pretty horrible situation. And months later, I was at, a, at somebody's house, a friend's house, at a party of all things. And I overhear them talking about me. And this one woman says, I can't believe that happened to Mary. And the other woman says, of course that happened to Mary. Mary doesn't live in her body. And I marched right over there because there was nothing I liked more than a confrontation. I marched right over there. And I was like, just tell me more about that. What is, I heard you say that. And what, and I didn't even know what it meant. So she goes over to her bookcase and she grabs John Kabat-Zinn's book that I have right over here called Wherever You Go, There You Are. And she, she, and she hands it to me. She goes, look, just read this. Just, just read this. And that was it. So I go home, I read the book. And till then, I actually had been practicing transcendental meditation. Disclaimer. I don't, I, I don't know how much I got out of it, but I was, I was doing that, let's say. And then here I am in this situation. So I decided to go like all in to this mindfulness thing because it really resonated because I was walking around like this brain in a meat suit and my values were really about achievement. And I think it's great to want to achieve and I think it's great to strive, but it was sort of to the neglect of other parts of my life. But if you looked at me, I paid a lot of attention to my body. I was super fit, totally ripped. So you would think, oh, she's got that down. But again, wrong concentration, you know, concentration on this superficial thing about the body concentration on striving about the body. And so here I am living in this body, but I don't know, I'm not actually inhabiting my own body. I don't know what it feels like to be me. I can tell you what my quads feel like after a long run, but I don't know what my emotions, I can't name an emotion probably. I don't know what upsets me. I don't know what my negative behavioral patterns are. I don't know what works for me and what doesn't work for me because I'm not paying attention to my own life. So that's where it came from. And I went, as I said, all in on, oh my gosh. I I so I took mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is the original kind of gold standard course created by John Kabat-Zinn in 1979. And then I was, I became like a, a wee bit of an evangelist and wanted to, you know, I went on weeks long retreats, silent retreats, and really wanted to bring it to as many people as I could. I got certified in mindful school so I could bring it to, by mindful school so I could bring it to kids. I got trauma certified. And so I wanted to just bring it to everybody. And as I said before, the, the part of the water I was swimming in at that time was financial services. So I started bringing it to financial advisors first through deep listening and classes in communication and then just created this full eight week long course that has a 7.5 CFP CEs and wrote a book. And that's that. You now know the whole story. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And wow, I have 
I have so many different areas my mind is is wanting to go. I, I just need to first say is like, we're both human. So perhaps that's why it makes me think of myself. And it's just the striving thing is is part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast. And unintentionally, I didn't realize that. I, I My entire life, I was striving as well. And I, I felt like it was a, 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 I would be getting these gold medals for keeping my schedule so packed. And yeah, I was my, my life. Exa- I was fitness, running, marathons, triathlons, Ironmans. And so your story reminds me a lot about my journey as I start to notice things. I as well didn't know what emotion was until two years ago. I knew what they were from the definition in the book's perspective, but I couldn't actually, like it was, this is what I'm feeling right now. I'm thinking this. I'm like, no, I just interpreted the emotion. So anyhow, I appreciate you sharing this with the audience because I feel Far too often, we think people have everything figured out and we don't. So there's something wrong with us. And I, your story helps, I think, diffuse that. So thank you. But I want to go to this, this noticing thing. You share about the, being pregnant and not noticing. From your experience, what is it that allows humans to not notice things going on in our lives to such a degree, like in your case, you didn't notice being pregnant and other people have their own stories of not noticing things. But why as humans, we don't, we don't notice these very things that are right in front of us. And how does meditation, I guess we'll get into meditation here, perhaps give us an opportunity to notice. Nobody teaches us to pay attention. <laughs> that's, a, right? that's, a, that's a very strange thing that is so true. And I remember as a kid and I'm a parent and I mean, I don't do this because I'm so aware of doing it. But, you know, as a kid in school, pay attention, right? So teachers say to kids, pay attention, but they never tell them what that looks like. At the very beginning in in mindfulness, we are all, first to what something you said before, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, we come from a place where there is nothing, it's not self-improvement because there's nothing wrong with you. But we're going to learn about ourselves. We're going to learn about what makes us tick what upsets us. We're going to learn how we as individuals create our emotions. We're going to learn about our thought patterns. And then we're going to ask, we're going to reflect, which is this really crucial part of any learning process. You're reflecting and and you're saying, is this working for me? You know, but before you you have to do that, you have to figure out how to pay attention. What does it look like and feel like? There's a felt sense to it. So what does it feel like in the mind and body when you're paying attention in a moment? Because it has a feeling. And we have this thing called the default mode network in our brain. And it is just like shooting thoughts out all day long. They're usually thoughts about me, mine, and my. And they don't necessarily make a ton of sense. And you're not paying attention when you're in this part of your brain, when this part of your brain is like is driving the boat. And so it's this practice of learning how from the simplest, what does my breath feel like? What does the air on the skin feel like? What is sound? And I'm not saying thinking about sound. I'm not saying telling a story about sound, but what is, how does your body experience sound? Where does your body experience sound? What does it feel like? And this is before you start judging it and calling it noise. And so it's this really kind of basic practice of what is it like to be a human being? Not to do, 
because we got the doing down really well. <laughs> the doing, but what the doing does is it provides this wonderful excuse. It provides this wonderful reason to not do the being because, you know, you got to get all the stuff done and you got to make all the money. And being, as it turns out, be really uncomfortable because it's just you and everything you've kind of done to yourself over the years and all the narratives you have and all the patterns that you have and how it doesn't matter how old you are, when you see all of that for the first time, it is very frequently not fun. And that is partially why people learn mindfulness and then they never do it again because it's not as much fun as doing the thing that you know how to do that you know is going to make you the money that you know is going to give you a better car. But what's going to improve your well-being? And there's not a study in the world that says it's the car. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what improves your well-being and there's, a, you know, there's, we happen to know, there's a list of, you know, 10 things that have been shown to improve well-being, all science-based. Everybody knows what they are. And if I say them, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you do them? Do you know how important sleep is? Do you have do you have good sleep hygiene and good sleep habits? And there is science behind that. You know, go to Andrew Huberman, go to the Andrew Huberman lab and, and listen and weep to all of the science around sleep, the science around alcohol, the science around exercise and plenty of other podcasts as well. But we know gratitude, we know self-compassion and for women in particular who are kind of the safety net of the social safety net of the world, if you're not compassionate about it for yourself, if, if you don't begin with, I'm already whole, and if you're beginning your day with, I'm broken, how can I fix myself? Like that's, you have to get past that. And it's really hard. So most people here, oh, the most difficult thing is you have to be able to love yourself. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know, can you put your hand on your own heart? Can you apply pressure to your own face. Can you say, I'm okay? Or are you like, no, 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 no. Which is exactly what I was like. I was told deep into my MBSR training, you've got a problem and here's your problem. Self-compassion. Like you clearly, you're still in the striving. You still don't think that you're acceptable unless you're doing all the things. And it's obvious. And I was like, ooh. It's obvious to these, you know, teachers who've been meditating for 40 years, but I took it to heart. And if you're not beginning, so I'm here to tell everybody in your audience that self-compassion is probably the most important thing to learn and practice. Once you have that, it kind of opens your heart to yourself. And that's the most important person. If you can't open your heart to yourself, you're not opening it to anybody else. So mindfulness, contrary to popular belief, is largely in mindfulness-based stress reduction in the tradition that I am trained in, it is largely about touching your own suffering and your own discomfort and being with it for a little, not immediately running and pivoting and, oh, I can do this thing that boosts my well-being when I start feeling uncomfortable. No, like, what is it like to feel this way and being with? your discomfort, your suffering, your misery, but then learning from that, like, okay, well, where does that come from? Largely the mind. And okay, well, what can I do about it? Plenty of stuff. But if you don't first touch your own suffering, that's where empathy comes from. 
you have you know what it is like to suffer as a human being with the human condition. And anybody who walks in your office has the same thing. <laughs> they have the human condition. And and I laugh because it's because it's kind of funny. You know, once you sit with your own suffering, you're like, oh, this is what it's all about. This is this is what is that bridge to any person I speak with in, from any culture, what where whatever they do for a living, my bridge to them is my heart and my knowledge that I suffer and they suffer just like me. Mm. And that's what nobody tells you about mindfulness, right? I mean, did anybody tell you that? Because mm -mm. that's really where I come from. So you can understand why a lot of people don't want this message or they hear it once and they're like, that sounds so good, but no thanks. Mm -hmm. Because when you sign up for this work, you are signing up to really look at yourself, but not obsess. And not get into your stories all day. And you're not, you're, all you need to know, you don't need to know and replay your whole childhood. You really don't. You, all you need to know is I do this and, and I keep doing this to myself. Or, oh, I keep meeting people like this who make me feel, they don't make me, who I feel like this around. Oh, this interaction keeps coming up. And I keep doing this thing and then feeling, you know, bad as a result. Oh, so what we ask in mindfulness isn't where does this come from? Isn't what's the story of your life? The question is, is this familiar? Because if it's familiar, it's a pattern. And if it's a pattern, your brain is going to predict that it happens again. And the only way you stop that is by doing something different. And so mindfulness is the way of identifying your patterns and creating new ones. Because your brain is a prediction engine. It predicts what's going to happen next. And it predicts the path of least resistance. It predicts what's always happened. So if you're in a position that's familiar, the only way out of that is to start doing something different. And then someday, your brain predicts that that doesn't happen anymore. And something different happens. So no book is going to change your behavior. Nothing somebody says to you, although I will say I had an eating disorder and I had a cognitive behavioral therapist and something he said to me actually did change my behavior. He said to me, see if you can add up all of the money you have spent on bulimia, add up all the money you've spent on food. He said that you have one job, that's your one job. And I was like literally cured overnight. So- not a lot of situations like that. And this was decades ago, not a lot of situations. But I will say the way that human beings change their behavior is by doing different things. Again, thank you. That was very, very well articulated. And I can sense the compassion oozing out of this mic all the way from Florida to Canada. This idea of breaking the patterns and no, like you said, no information that someone can give you except this CBT therapist in the situation, which, you know, who knows, you must have been at a certain spot where you're ready for that change. Yes. And that was the icing on the cake. Yes, but um, I, I appreciate this approach to the mindfulness and the way that you really articulate and explain mindfulness, because for myself, my, I have this you know, assumption that mindfulness is sometimes this cool, sexy thing that really pop or successful entrepreneurs do. This is my old version of it that I got to do because everyone's doing it. 
which is, you know, of course, dysfunctional in itself thinking that way. But this idea of identity, like becoming more self-aware so we can recognize these patterns so that we can, from a place of like intentional perspective change as opposed to reactive, I think is really important, which really interests me around my enjoyment on our money stories is that I actually feel that money is a huge window into those deep, dark waters. And that's what brought me into those deep, dark waters when I started noticing that my behaviors around money were actually quite silly. I was silencing my wife without intentionally meaning to. I was the big financial planner, so it's like quiet. I got this under control. I'm doing this for her family. And then I started noticing, no, that's from scarcity defensive mode. And it was this noticing that allowed me to give me almost permission to go in those waters, but it was through money, which was interesting. And I am trying to be better with stillness and the elements of mindfulness and it's work in progress. But I've noticed that beyond any explanation of how to get high rates of returns or investments, it's this noticing my own behaviors in and around money that have been the most influential in my financial life. So I just really appreciate the way you talk about is identifying these patterns so that we can intentionally change them. I always used to say there's there's two things you have a relationship with for the rest of your life. Like you can ditch your family, <laughs> but you can't ditch food and you can't ditch money. Yes. And you got to figure out those two relationships because they dramatically affect your health and well-being. And now I actually would add for many people social media to that because they have no idea what has happened to their own brains and behaviors due to their relationship with social media. And I have more training than the average bear on this topic. And I don't, I just don't think there's an appreciation by the average person who isn't like a parent of a teenage girl, you know, because we don't realize how we have been rewired due to social media. And we don't realize what we keep doing to ourselves due to how it is designed. Now, similar difference between money and food is food you experience with your senses like directly, right? And money is like you experience, you're not like sitting with the money. You're sitting with what you got the money for or a mentality about it. So there it's different. In social media, you're sitting with your experience of it. So these three things are, are a little different, but you can use the same practice with all of them. It is a noticing practice and, and it, it has to kind of become a habit. But when you feel like, because you will feel it first, you, you feel the urge to buy something, go onto Twitter, eat or go to the refrigerator or drive through whatever. So first, like something probably is happening in the body. There's some kind of sensation and then a thought like attaches to that. And then you have this like little mini story. I need to buy this. I have to do this thing on social media. I have to like this because if I like this, X happens and I feel better or I feel worse. I buy this, I feel better than I feel worse. I eat this, I feel so much better than I feel worse. And so it is, if you can create a habit of paying attention to the sensations in your body and the thoughts that travel along with them before, it's like leading up to the thought of, oh, I have to do the thing. There, so it, start, it starts before that. It's, it starts with usually sensations in the body, a thought arises, and then you're like on this freight train to Twitter, to McDonald's drive-through, to buying something that you really don't need, 
or or you promised you wouldn't do with the money, whatever it is. So if you can get a hold of those, that that happens. And if you can put a pause in there, you know, if you can practice pausing even for two minutes, one minute, just one minute, and just really focus on the sensations in your body and the thoughts and allow them to pass, you will find, and this is how I stopped drinking, by the way. I love Prosecco. I would drink like two glasses of Prosecco. So at Brown, we Judd Brewer actually helps people with addictions and, and ha- other habits that they don't want. And he does it by telling them to go toward it. So for my Prosecco, and he, he doesn't do this with addiction. So this was like, I had a social drinking and I didn't want to drink. So he says, pour that glass of Prosecco and smell it and look at the bubbles and drink it as a mindful awareness practice and see what happens. And what happens is, A, you do it so slowly that it's like, it's interesting and it's good, but you certainly don't want a second one. Because the more you pay attention, the more you realize what happens to your, what you feel like, like I start to feel a little fuzzy or something. And you can do that with food too. What? So be super mindful about money also. So don't do the thing, put this, this mindfulness in, feel the feelings that you're having, check out the thoughts that arise and see if you can just be with them and watch them pass. Because you said something about settling that you're having a tough time with that. You don't have to settle. So is that about stillness? I like the word settling. I like the idea of settling. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's too much, it's too lofty a goal. But if you can be present and allow what is emerging, what is arising in your body and the thoughts, if you can just allow them to show up and then you like acknowledge them, hey, what they do is they go away. So if you don't engage with those thoughts, sometimes there's this uh, analogy of like, the thoughts are like the car's on the highway, right? And you're on the side of the highway and you're watching all the thoughts go by, which is great. At any moment, you can jump in front of a thought. You can jump in front of a car or you can jump into a car, a thought. And that's your choice. So in mindfulness, we want to be at choice with our attention. And when you're being driven by these thoughts and sensations, you don't have a choice. So if you can practice so that you have choices, I can choose not to have the glass of Prosecco. I can choose not to buy $350 sneakers because I have, I'm paying attention. I'm noticing I have this urge. I have these feelings. I have these thoughts. I want the thing. I want this. And I sit with them for two minutes and guess what they do? They go away. And I'm like, do I really need sneakers? Well, if I really do, then I don't think it does. So you get yourself to a point where you you begin completely emotional. You know, you're making an emotional decision. Like, you know, everybody does. <laughs> and you sit for two minutes and you watch all of that play out in your body and in your mind. And then you watch it leave. And then you're left with, okay, what's the smart thing to do right now? What's the most skillful thing to do? And you are completely at choice because you're not being driven by your body and by your thoughts. I just hear so much of this idea of, again, we're talking about pausing, but this whole practice is around noticing. But you said earlier that compassion, I think at least as you're talking, I feel like for myself, I needed that compassion to allow that that, that pause. 
And I'm interested to see your thoughts. Earlier, you mentioned something about you don't need to always go into the past and live in the past. You can change your behaviors. I'm going to use the example in around money. For example, myself, I, I'm a financial planner. I I was usually very tight-fisted with my money and especially in my relationship with my my wife. And I alluded to that earlier that I thought I was doing things for, the, for us, but it was actually for me, which I started to benefit and cultivate compassion when I went back to realize, you know what? Like growing up, I was a super shy kid. I got into the, the finance world. Money gave me a voice because people were noticing me. I liked that dopamine's increasing and this is ha what's happening totally unconscious but i i gained a lot of value and i don't i know you're not saying you can't, never go in the back but i want to get or like in your history but i realized that i personally could cultivate a lot more compassion for myself when i start to slow down and notice me like oh, okay that's just this you know that shy quiet sean who is trying to get attention it's he's not bad because used to i'd be like oh i've done something bad i'm wrong Hide from that, hide from that, go do something else. So what, what are your thoughts on when we're trying to intercept these thoughts on the highway? Where do you see, if anything at all, blend of going into the past to understand the origin story versus just changing the thoughts? You know, I'm not a big origin story person, but some people are. What I will say about what you just said, though, that is really key. It's your story is in the past and you need to not make it with your language. So that's shy, quiet Sean who needs da 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 da. No, that Sean used to be like this. So I was living in my brain for a really long time. I, I didn't appreciate X, Y, and Z. I just wasn't there yet. I would recommend you use language. That's, that's not, if you're saying that's Sean right now, you're perpetuating the story about Sean in the present because you're talking about that story like it's you now with the words you you just used. So I would, mindset-wise, like if you're going to teach kids about, you know, growth mindset, which is so much harder than people think it is, a place to begin is what is somebody's story and make sure that their story is them in the past. Because if your story is still you now, it's a really, that's, I don't know how that changes. Like it's, it's, so it's like you're fighting, your present self is fighting against your past self. So what you do is you love on Sean from the past, you know, that's like, what choice did he have? I, you know, this is, this was Sean's circumstances in life. And then he has genetics and, you know, this is what that, that cocktail. And he was a kid. Hello. I mean, we, human beings, our brains aren't even fully developed until we're 25 for crying mm -hmm. out loud. So before that, like everybody gets a pass on everything. I mean, not everything, but close to it because you're not completely able to do long-term planning, to make really good decisions, to really use your brain in the way that you currently can because it's literally not developed yet. So, so Sean, little Sean, little Mary, that little girl who X, Y, Z, like, so much compassion and so much love for her. And she made it here. Holla, little Mary. So she did all that. And she was like this in the past. And that worked for her. That didn't work for her. But now she's like this. And for everybody, for every single person, that, which, you know, it's, it's more logical than anything else. But you wouldn't be the person you are now without that person, you know, which is sort of obvious. So also gratitude for that person. And I'm not saying... 
You know, some people, I'm not saying gratitude for my trauma, although some people will say that, but gratitude that I handled it the best I could at the time. Mm-hmm. And I did what I did and I learned, oh my gosh, I learned all of this. Mm-hmm. And now I know that that really didn't serve me or, or maybe in some ways it did. So again, gratitude. And But here I am now and I'm different and I've learned and I've evolved and I'm, you know, better and I'm going to keep getting better and different and learning more. So if I'm doing a story thing, it's more like that. And I really don't spend a heck of a lot of time with past Mary and all of her many, many, many mistakes. I just don't. And I don't know how much it serves us, but I can tell you something. I can say, the more you do something, you know, because our habits are neural pathways, right? So the more you do something, the more your brain predicts you're going to do it. So the more you're thinking about the past, the more you're going to think about the past. You might want to do that. Maybe you don't, but you want to be at choice with how you're thinking about yourself and you want your story to be accurate. Because that Sean is gone and wonderful and helped you get here. But we have a different Sean now. Mm-hmm. And so I would rather hear you talk about who you are now and what you're curious about now and the things you're working on now and not get, I, I get a sense of like this bringing down. Like, I don't, I don't know how much you need to pay attention to that. It's like, it's gone. Mm-hmm. But that's me. Yeah, no, and I, it aligns a lot with, um, I'm currently doing a master's in positive psychology and the field about noticing the positive elements of life. And there's this theory called broaden and build is the more we notice the positive things using mindfulness, for example, we start to broaden our perspective yes. and build upon that. So I definitely do agree. And I think it can be so hard, not so hard at times, like I was saying there, we can fall into those negative thought patterns, which were sticky, but noticing these positive are not, po- not, not fake positive, but you know, like, not that like, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy, but deep inside you're like, no, but noticing the good. Yes. Again, for me, allowed me to start moving what you said. And this is something that I noticed within clients that I talk to and people in around money. But when we start to notice the good of ourselves, we could start going towards that human being instead of that human doer. Because yes. I feel like with that human doer, we're looking for that satisfaction or that pat on the back, but we can just be with ourselves. So this brings me this human being versus human doing. And what we were just talking about noticing, whether it's just from the past or just looking at it forward, makes me think about a section in your book where you're talking about walk with people instead of telling. And I really found that valuable. And I'd like you to explain, but in a world that we're like dominated by news headlines that are quick fixes, get things done now, an expert saying like, click on this link and I'm going to teach you how to be happy in 10 days. I see that you're singing a different tune. So can you explain this benefits of walking with people instead of telling? You can bring in mindfulness, financial lives, whatever you feel feel fits here. Yeah, it's um, certainly not getting a lot of trouble. Action, I can tell you that. But I do I do see some people can saying- I, What's not getting traction, that statement? Yeah, the idea of, um, well, there, there is like this, there has been for 20 years, a, a group of you know financial planners who were interested in, at the time it was called like the personal side. So mm-hmm. it was all technical side, then it was personal side, and now investor psychology. But this is different. This isn't about psychology. This isn't about investor psychology. It's about humans being together. Mm -hmm. Okay. And 
in education, in the field of education, back when I was getting my doctorate, that was kind of the beginning of this, this is a long time ago, this um, learner-centered stuff. The phrase at the time was to be the guide on the side and not the sage on the stage. The teaching model was being flipped. And now actually it's like called the flipped classroom. It's, it's something like the flipped classroom, sort of. But the idea is that I'm not the expert here to like fill your head with stuff. And the same thing with financial advice. So I'm not here, financial isn't here, advisor isn't here to like fill your head with stuff. I am here to see what the human being in front of me needs, and on a really basic human level. And what part of mindfulness does is mindfulness practice is, is on the very basic mammalian level, you know, we're social animals and this is what people don't get. We help and heal one another through our social connection. And we all know somebody who we can't stand, who walks in the room and they immediately feel us, they may, you know, like we feel out of whack or feel like weird. And we all know somebody who comes in the room and we're like, ah, oh, because it makes you feel, that person makes you feel good. So our nervous systems help one another. And if you, as a financial advisor, if your nervous system is not regulated, you don't sense what's happening with the other person. And B, you're not in a position to help them because you don't notice what's going on with yourself and you don't notice what's going on with them. And you're not really paying attention to the connection. And that should be the priority is the connection. And the the question is really, and I say to advisors all the time, well, what they're always like, what about my agenda? And it's like, as an MBSR teacher, okay, this is just brief analogy. We have to hand in, we have two, two and a half hour classes and we have to hand in to Brown University your agenda by the minute for two and a half hours for every class that you teach, okay? Two and a half hours. And then the point is you have your agenda and then you go, you just hold it really lightly and you see, you read the room, you see what the people in the room need and you sense what is happening with them and you start, it's called inquiry, which is you ask questions. You never say the word why, by the way. You ask questions. You say, you know, what's here now for you? Or if they say X just happened to me, well, how is that for you? What is like... You know, how are you experiencing that? How are you dealing with that? Whatever. But but above all, you let the other person lead and your agenda might be going out the window. But what you're doing is you're meeting the needs of the person in front of you and that's what they're going to remember. And that's relationship. You would do that with anybody else, right? Like you wouldn't go out with your friend and be like, I want to talk about this. And I, you know, and I'm not going to check out how you're feeling because I have my agenda for this meeting. You know, these are relationships. I thoroughly appreciate how you frame that because <laughs> in a world, financial planning, where we are so tight-fisted on our agendas, which when we reflect, I think the agenda is all about ourselves, trying to make ourselves be seen by explaining these complex things. If I look at these agendas, in the last 20 years, our financial health collectively, whether you're in the US or Canada, has declined. We've become more in debt We've become more stressed about money. Money is still the top stressor in our lives. So perhaps these agendas aren't working and people just want to be seen and feel heard and forget the rates of return. Last week, I was having a conversation with Michael Collins. He's a professor at Madison and he does financial coaching. And he says, you know what? In a session, or he doesn't do it. He studies it. But in a session, if they came out saying, I don't want to save, 
because, you know, I have these own personal values I want to live. He's like, that's a success. In the financial planning world, to be like, no, 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 they need to save. And he's like, sure, it might be the prudent thing, but are we missing the client? So I really, really appreciate you framing it that way. And so how do people, or is it possible, how do we start walking with people instead of telling them, do we need to go through our own, <laughs> understand our own intentions? Like, do we need to become more self-aware to become more empathetic in these conversations to get that connectivity, connectiveness that you talked about? I think so. You know, I'm a little biased because that's what I do, but I don't understand how you would have success. The other person would be satisfied in, in any relationship if you're not meeting their needs as a human being. And I don't mean like meeting all their broad, like Maslow needs. I mean, having whatever level of relationship it is, listening listening. I teach deep listening and financial advisors find it really weird and really awkward, but sometimes you just listen and it you don't say anything and mm -hmm. you don't have to, and mm -hmm. you don't have to prompt. And if somebody is like stuttering or crying, you don't have to do something. You really don't. You could just allow them to, to have their moment. And I actually call deep listening, deep witnessing. It's like, if somebody gets upset in front of you, that is an honor. That is a compliment. That's like, I feel so safe with you that I can fall apart in front of you. And your response should be thank you, really. And listening to the whole, whatever it is, and giving them back their own words, not to forget about the paraphrasing nonsense. You know, in when it comes to, to when you want information, you know, when it's more like a different kind of, there's different kinds of listening. And when like you just need some stuff from them, I get the paraphrasing thing. But when somebody is upset, it is really important to not sanitize their language. And like, I've upgraded the language for you. And I'm going to tell you what I heard. Like, no, you know, give them back <laughs> their language because it was so important to them to use it in that moment. Oh, you're just making me think of our, this. If people had created that, maybe it's unintentional, that, that environment that that person felt willing to share and give those emotions, those tears. If we don't notice that and we just jump to like, oh, gosh, this is making me feel awkward because I'm emotionally unavailable and I don't know what's happening to me. So I'm going to just jump in and talk about something that I know. Now, what do we do to that individual who opened up and it was like shut down? Now we perpetuate this, this fear that we all, or not, like this fear that we have with our money. But you just did something really important. You surfaced something really important, which is what most people don't notice. Most people don't notice that when somebody else gets upset, they feel really uncomfortable. So part of mindfulness is when somebody is whatever the heck they're doing, that you are, you're listening to them, but you're also listening here. You're listening for, isn't this interesting that I'm having the, the thing that I'm having? My body is, is doing what it's doing as a result of the words that this person is saying, or I'm having these thoughts and it's important that you, as you did, that you notice that most people don't notice and they just say something and they're saying something to stop the feelings that they're having. I only noticed that because for eight years I didn't. And I was just like, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> oh, let me insert but here. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, so and so I would like to hear you be a little more positive about yourself. Um, okay. <laughs> so I think it is great that you're here, that you have these conversations with yourself, that you notice these things about your body, that you, you recognize that you you used to be a certain way with money and with your wife, and you used to say certain things and you used to behave certain ways, but now you've learned from all that and you know, you have a much better relationship with yourself and you're much more compassionate to others and you understand others more because you understand yourself more. Like, let's look at that. It's so true. I think that's where I go back to this money, like a relationship with money is a is an opportunity to get there instead of outsourcing it all to these external things that, you know, the greater social narrative has us believing is when we have this, we're going to get there. And that's what draws me into mindfulness is that what you just explained happens when we sit and notice and feel. Yeah, but but you're noticing. So mm -hmm. if we can get people just to notice what you're like in a moment, maybe you had something you, you wanted to talk about and you start talking about that and they change the subject. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to have all kinds of feel, feels, like you're going to have sensations that occur in your body. And you need to get you need to get acquainted with those because they come from someplace. They come from not wanting to have somebody change the subject. They come from <laughs> you wanting to do your agenda, but whatever it is, when you notice them and you allow them to pass, you're giving the other person airtime to finish to do whatever they're they're, they're going to do. And then you've given yourself a moment to do something skillful, which is not immediately, you know, be angry or annoyed or, or, you know, bring them, corral them or whatever. And instead they just told you what's important to them. Mm -hmm. Like they told you. So when you say somebody changed the subject, they're like, no, that's their subject. You did, you had the wrong subject. Mm -hmm. So they just gave you a gift, which is their subject. And now you can talk about that. If you're listening. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. So listening. So mindfulness, like the short version, is listening to yourself and learning how to listen to others while listening to what's happening in your body and getting to a point where you're not acting habitually. You're not doing the thing that you usually do when somebody else does X. But first, you have to realize you do that. You know, so first it's like, oh, I, oh, oops. You know, so so there's this initial getting to know yourself and, you know, waking up to who you are and how you operate. That's that can be or at least for me was fairly embarrassing because it was just like, oh, wow, I'm like that. <laughs> what is up with that? But I can laugh and yeah. say, OK, I used to do that and totally understand where it came from. And, you know, but that's done. And now we're going to do things differently. And someday I might look back and be like, I can't believe I did that. But I don't have to, you know, live back then. I know I'm doing the best I can, getting more skillful every day at these things. I'm sticking with my practice. And what you'll learn about mindfulness practice is it's got a really tight feedback loop. Like you stop your mindfulness practice, all your benefits retreat fairly quickly. So all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm just like off or, um, you know, snippy or whatever the thing that you used to do if you're paying attention, you'll notice that you, you're you're starting, that's coming back. Mm. So you've got to go and you've got to, you know, you've got, you've got to work on those neural pathways. So it only happens with practice. But I'm here to tell you it's not all fun and games. And, you know, again, I appreciate that because that's the human condition. It's like, yeah. it's a mountain without a top. 
we're never, yeah. ever, we're never arriving. But good for you for, you know, the journey. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to do that. You just, you just opened the doors for that. So <laughs> I just like self exploded on you here, but, uh, I wanted to talk about this model, but I'll put it in the show notes because I want to respect our time. We have three minutes left, but we're talking about like using mindfulness and how do we change these behaviors? I like that idea of experience, capture, reflect, integrate. And yeah. our conversation made me think of that. I'll put that in the show notes, but I really like, I just want to highlight one piece. So you're really diligent in writing that we need to reflect right away, not tomorrow. Yeah. And that's, and, and Daniel Kahneman is very helpful on that because our memories are like, really bad. And when you have an experience, any kind of experience, you want to capture it, you know, in your mind, like this, it, it was like this, like try not to judge. It was like this. It was like this. It was like this. And then ask yourself, what else is that like? You know, is this familiar? What else is that like? When else do I feel this way? When else do I get thoughts like that? Because that's the quick time machine to your programming and your story that you really don't need to revisit, but you know that it's a pattern. And by reflecting, you know that you've got to watch out and you've got to start developing habits around all of those things that you just noticed that are like what you just experienced, if that makes any sense. And then you integrate, you have to learn. So you have to capture it immediately, reflect on it, and then nobody's going to learn unless you you have to intentionally move forward with what you've learned and practice. It was nice and simple, compl- or it took a complex thing and made it simple. So I appreciate that model. And like I said, I'll include it in the show notes. We have a couple minutes left. I want to be respectful of your time. I got two questions. One you could do as fast as you want because it's your answer. But I ask everyone this. So I'm going to go a little quicker here to respect okay. time. Let's say that you're at end of life and you're on a front porch looking out somewhere that brings you peace. Maybe it's Florida. Maybe it's somewhere else. And you decide to write a letter to your child's child about what you learned on having a healthy relationship with money, what would a theme to that letter be? Pay attention. Who do you want to be? Because what you do with your money tells the world what you value. And if you want the world to to see your money, you'll create a life where the world sees your money. And that tells you what you value. You value the world seeing your money. And if that doesn't matter to you, it won't matter to you. But, you know, it is a vehicle and find out who you are and what you want to be and use it to support that. Thank you. That was great. Mary, your book, Mindfulness for Financial Advisors, Practicing New Way of Being is out. It's online. Where can people find more about you, your book, and what you're up to? www.marymartin.com phd.com. You're probably too young to know this, but Mary Martin is a very famous person, was. She was the first Peter Pan. She was this. So there's a lot of Mary Martins. I noticed that when I was looking at you. (laughs) And there's even a couple of Mary Martin PhDs. And there's even one who's a mindfulness teacher. So marymartinphd.com. And that's where you can find me, my speaking, my teaching, my book, all the stuff, the classes, it's all there. Okay, I'll include all of that. And thank you so much for sharing your story, your insights with us today. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sail.